Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Creatives. Today, I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud, I am joined by the one and only Paula Share. Paula, it's an honor and a privilege to be here, so thank you for spending your time with me today. Great to be here. So my reason for creating this podcast was to help bridge the gap between entry-level designers and the industry's best practitioners, and you are by far one of the best. Uh, but I'd also like to do that by pointing out that for many designers, even the best designers in the world, there were often times of insecurity and struggle and failure. And I was very interested to read in your article with the great discontent. As a child, I failed at everything but art. First, I was too scrawny. Then I was too fat. My hair was never right. And I was never popular. But as the school artist, I was okay. That was the first place I felt like I actually belonged. So can you tell me about that time in your life and what was going through your mind? I grew up in suburbia, which I hate. And um, I think I hated it because you were expected to be a specific way. Mm-hmm. And that you, uh, it was very important to conform. And so that if you had individual preferences or quirks that were different from other people, you tended to hide them. Um, because it wasn't part of a social norm. Uh, I had parents who, my father worked for the government, he was a scientist, my brother grew up to be a scientist, my mother was a school teacher, and I was an art nut. I didn't belong in that family. It seemed odd, it seemed odd at school. Um, I went to a suburban high school in Silver Spring, Maryland, and uh, what was important was going to the football games or... um, Uh, the way you were interested in certain types of school social activities that I sort of thought were silly. And I didn't really feel like I had hit my stride till I was in college. So what was it like when you got to college and you finally were able to connect with like-minded people? Well, it was... It was incredible to find a whole huge group of people who who felt and thought like I did. And then, of course, it was also the mid-60s, and the whole country seemed to erupt. You know, there was, right. a, there was a cultural revolution then, and um, it, it felt comfortable to me. Um, some of the values I had in school I still maintain. But for me, I think that the one thing that stayed through me through all kinds of social and political movements of our times is that I really hang on to the notion of being an individual. Like I don't, I don't feel comfortable with prescribed behavior and that that goes back to that exp- suburban experience. Like I even feel that way when I go on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, the, it, sort of, it sort of controls your behavior. Like you're supposed to like something, you're supposed to comment on something, you're supposed to talk to your friends, you stay in the same cycle, and then you all have the same opinions. I think that's not great for society, actually. I also read that you, when you were a, a child and when you were in high school, you loved to draw. Um, what were some of the first things that you remember drawing? Was there anything in particular or a moment where you realized, like, hey, you know, I'm pretty good at this? Uh, first, I drew little funny cartoon characters. Then I drew girls that were going to be paper dolls, and I made their clothes. Then I started making uh, the school uh, promotion posters for their events. I was the events chairman when I was in high school because I was good at art. Right. 
Um, I took art drawing classes at Corcoran uh, Gallery downtown when I was uh, 12 and 13, and I, that's when I first saw another group of people. There were beatniks down there. I never saw people like that. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, I, in my senior year of high school, I had a teacher, Mr. Tucker, who had a um, glass case that was outside the door to the art room. And he put up a sign on the glass case that said, Picture of the Week. And he would pick somebody's work from um, the class each week. And I had a lot of pictures of the week. And that was big for me. Yeah. That was really fantastic. He sounds like a good guy. He was a great guy. Yeah. I had some very good teachers. I have to say, in my public high school in Silver Spring, Maryland, I had three memorable teachers who I owe a lot to. Did you have any professors in college who really uh, set an impression with you? My first graphic design course, it wasn't called graphic design, it was called basic design at Tyler. Uh, I had a teacher who taught in uh, the Bauhaus method of, of learning to see space, and you had to move a black square around a white page, and you did things that were white on white constructions that taught you about pattern and form. But I was sloppy, and to make the white squares, the black squares stay on the white page, you had to rubber cement it down. Mm -hmm. And you had to do the, the, the same with the white on white sculptures. And of course, these were craft days. And I was just terrible at craft. I was good at thinking, but I was bad at um, uh, doing things neatly. So he was always sort of poo-pooing whatever I did because it looked so messy. Right. And, um, he said to me at the end of the course, which I hated um, because of the sort of the constraint of it, he said, um, "Why do you want to? Why are you here? Why are you at this art school?" And I said, "Well, I want to be an artist." And he said, "Cooking is an art." And uh, I just thought, "Well, God, I hate design, and I want to get out of this class." And then years later, when I was at CBS Records and I had a, a reputation, um, he was teaching at. Uh, the Philadelphia College of Art that I think then became, it changed its name, I forgot what the name of the school is, something, the, the University of the Arts, I think, or right. I think it's called. And he invited me down to talk to his class. And he said, this is one of my former students and I can take no credit whatsoever for her success. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. I think for entry-level designers, one of the, the toughest things is uh, finding direction and, and finding what you're really into. Uh, you know, maybe typography, it might be illustration. Uh, do you stick to one? Do you kind of be like a jack of all trades? Uh, I'm curious, when you were in college and when you were starting out, what were the things that you found to be the most interesting? When I was in college, I actually was studying illustration. Mm -hmm. I liked drawing. And I, I really didn't draw well. What I did was style well. You know, mm -hmm. like I, but, and I was doing this sort of very intricate type of illustration that was influenced by the Beatles revolver co cover or, uh, you know, Aubrey Beardsley. I mean, that was sort of what, were, what was fashionable at the time. And I didn't know how to apply typography to it. And in, in the course I took, you, you, you made images and you coupled them with typography to make statements. So it was about idea. And you could execute it really any way that you could, but there were no computers then. So you actually drew the type or you went to the art supply store and you, you usually bought Helvetica yeah. and you rubbed it down on a corner of whatever you were making, not to mess up the illustration. Yeah. So I would rub down the Helvetica and it would bubble and crack and look like a mess. And, and I hated it. 
and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why I was using it or why that's what was available. And I had a teacher named Stanislaw Sigorski, and he was um, a Polish illustrator and designer, and he did things like the cream cover. He did uh, sort of book jackets and record covers, and they were illustrative, and he, he drew his own type. And he said to me, illustrate with type. And he meant for me to integrate the type into the illustration. So at first I began drawing type. And I sort of drew it in so it, it corresponded to the style of illustration. And that was some of it was very crude, but I began to know how to integrate uh, words and images in a very powerful way because that's what that taught me. And when I got to CBS Records and I began to set type and I didn't have to draw it anymore, and sometimes I had other people redraw fonts for me when I wanted to modify them, which I was doing at a very young age. I fell in love with it, and it took over. Right. Pretty soon the images disappeared, and I just became a typographer. So at 22 years young, you meet your now husband, Seymour Quas, and you discover the Pushpin Studios, which was already well-established. Uh, Seymour was working with Milton Glaser and many other really talented artists. Uh, and I read that uh, discovering the Pushpin Studio changed the whole way that you thought about life and you thought about design. So uh, what was that like to meet Seymour and, and to discover that kind of work? In the uh, 70s, and uh, saw the work in the 60s when I was still in art school, that they there were sort of two prevailing warring styles even. There was a, sort of a, the uh, Swiss international style, which was very ordered and Helvetic on a grid. And uh, then there was uh, the work of Pushpin, which was uh, uh, conceptual illustration and eclectic typography. And that, that resonated with me, and it was also part of the culture. Like there was, you know, Heinz Edelman in Europe. There were uh, uh, sort of zigzag rolling papers and, and underground magazines and Zap comics. And that's, that's the visual culture I came out of. I've heard you talk uh, about your parents and that they didn't quite understand how many times you hear that in design. It happens all the time. Um, and my parents were a, a bit confused, too. I had a pretty good job and um, was making great money considering I wasn't even out of school yet, and they quit that. And uh, at the time, I didn't know I made the right decision taking a leap. And my parents didn't quite understand why I would want to go into the city and meet all these, these designers and you know get a real job, kid, was kind of the narrative and is for many people. And I know you had that same thing. Do you think that your, your work at an early age was motivated by trying to prove your parents wrong? I think everybody's different and that, that they, the way they come to it is different. I don't think there's a general rule. For me, and at the time, remember this a long time ago, nobody was a graphic designer. My mother, before she died, uh, you know, and she's been dead about 10 years, but I remember her saying to me, well, everybody's a graphic designer these days. Oh. We didn't know what it was, which yeah. is actually true. There, you know, the computer changed everything. I think people began to understand that you made choices about typography because they had to do it on their own computers. Um, so it, it, all of a sudden you wonder how decisions are made. People began to recognize logos. People um, used to not understand what something looked like. And I think that Apple and Nike and the kind of branding um, really changed the understanding of what a logo actually does. They might recognize Coca-Cola back in the day, but they would remember the advertising line, not what the thing actually looked like. And I think we moved from 
a verbal society to a visual one, and I think that was a very big change over the past 40 years and very prevalent now. And now if you look at advertising uh, from 20 years ago, it seems so incredibly embarrassing. Why would you ever do that? It right. seems so obvious. Um, so there was change. So earlier this year, I took your course on Skillshare, Dynamic Brand Identity, Designing Logos That Evolve. And in this course, you talk about you know, the power of a visual identity system, not just the logo. And for many young designers, this part can be a little bit confusing at first because it's a lot to take in. You're somebody who has executed some of the most successful brand identity systems in the world. Uh, so what makes for a successful visual system and one that can grow and one that can evolve? Well, they've, ch they've also changed over time. If you consider uh, the Paul Rand era, he would make a perfect mark and he would apply it very beautifully in the corner of something. And if, if it was on a box and that corner of the box was ripped off, you have no idea what company it was. Mm -hmm. That uh, designing, uh, designing identities today involve components that are recognizable collectively. So it usually means a mark or a logo type, a particular color palette, a typographic system, and methodology for what makes it recognizable. And that you want to be able to use the identity system in every form of media that exists. So it has to be small enough that it can exist as a Twitter button or a Facebook page or a uh, what? A thousand things. Absolutely. <laughs> You, you need it to be that small, and you also be able, need to be able to make it work uh, in a large capacity. You want to be able to make it animate. You want to be able to uh, be, be, have it be recognizable and even sometimes change mood or create sub-branding. Um, so that it has to do a lot of things together. So you're looking at alphabets as language, you're looking at form as language, you're looking at color as language, and you're trying to figure out what are the variables and at what point is it no longer recognizable? How much can you stretch it? And there's always a point where you don't recognize it anymore. Probably goes without saying, but I would imagine that you are constantly inundated with people wanting to work for you and people submitting their portfolios and trying to get a job here at Pentagram, the largest independent design consultancy in the world. And um, one of the things I want to do with this podcast is to help entry-level designers get an idea of what the top designers in the world are looking for. Um, so for you, what constitutes a successful portfolio and what are some of the things that may disqualify or show that someone's not prepared and ready for the job? Um, I want to distinguish between a terrific portfolio and hiring somebody yeah. because they're very different. The first thing is that what is so difficult for me, to be quite honest, is judging what somebody's work is going to be like by viewing their portfolio. Because as a teacher, and I've been teaching for years, I mostly hire my students or I hire people who my staff has brought on to intern because they know and I see how they develop. It's very hard to know how long something took. If you see a perfect assignment, in a portfolio, did that kid do it in a week or a year? You have no way of knowing. What happens when you pick them up and put them on a real job? Are they going to be able to um, analyze it and, and begin to figure out how to function within a team? You have no idea what that behavior is going to be. So that's very, very difficult. And I think that 
what tends to work is a combination of a spectacular portfolio and the appropriate referral system. For example, when I came to New York, and it was a much wide open, uh, more wide open field, but my teacher referred me to people he knew who referred me to other people, which is how I initially got hired, so that at least there was somebody who was sort of vouching for me as somebody credible. I think it's very difficult for any kid to put together a resume unless they've already then you're, if, unless you're talking about somebody who already has work experience right. and send it to somebody and expect that to be understandable of, or of interest to them. Why would they know just based on working someplace without some kind of recommendation from some reliable source that that this person is good? So that it seems on the one hand very unfair in the first place like if you're if you're in a remote school and you're not connected to people in New York, it could be rough, but the one thing that you can do is get an internship. At Pentagram, we send, people send in portfolios, and we have, uh, right now, uh, it's a rotating thing. There's usually an associate who's in charge of um, going through the portfolios and picking the ones that are standouts, and that those kids get a shot at interning. And when they're interning, then you get to see what they can do because they're actually in a situation where something happens. And generally what happens is somebody, um, it's like playing catch the plate. If you throw the plate at somebody and they catch it, they tend to get hired. Right. So it's not, it's not just the portfolio. It's the portfolio plus a lot of luck and some connections. Uh, I would say that, that Pentagram demands a first-rate portfolio to get in the door to get the shot at the internship but uh, you do get a shot. I think that one of the most important parts of being an entry-level designer is surrounding yourself with mentors or finding somebody to kind of take a chance on you. Um, you know, you may not have a lot to show for it, but you're reaching out, you have the right attitude. Um, and oftentimes, I found in my, in my career that uh, people were receptive, and I'm sure that's obvious by this podcast, but I, I try and encourage people to reach out to their, their design heroes and to make those connections because oftentimes you'll actually, you actually will get a response. So uh, was there anyone that you had in your career that you remember that really stood out and kind of took a chance on you? Well, my, my teacher Stanislaw Sigorski got me to move to New York. Um, and he called up uh, a, a number of archit uh, art directors and got me interviews. So that's really how I started, um, and I came to New York with fifty dollars in a portfolio in 1970 because of Mr. Zagorski. Wow. Um, my mother thought didn't think I should do that. She thought she, as a matter of fact, said to me, "Oh, Paula, don't do anything like that. That takes talent." You oh. know? So you know, it 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 was scary. Right. Uh, but I wanted to do this thing, and Zagorski also said that anybody who really wants to do this can. And what he meant by it was that. While it's difficult and competitive, if you're determined to do it, it's not like being a movie star right. where you really, you're really totally dependent on luck. Mm -hmm. there, is, there are steps you can go through. You might bounce around for a year or two, and, and the trick is to know whether or not you're in a situation that's, that's to your benefit um, and whether or not you're going to be able to grow there. For example, I... Um, first was designing the insides of children's books at Random House, and I, um, my boss was leaving and going to an advertising agency, and he couldn't take me, and he didn't think I would grow at all in that position. 
So he recommended me to um, CBS Records to their um, in-house advertising department, which was a, was a good job to get. And I started working there, but the cool job was in the cover department. And the cover department thought that the advertising department was the cootie department, and you'd never mm -hmm. get hired in the cover department if you worked in the advertising department. Right. So I had to get out of the advertising department, and the way I got out of the advertising department was that um, at Atlantic Records, they had advertising and covers as the same department, and there was a, an art director there who liked my ads. So he hired me to work at Atlantic, and that's when I got to do record covers. I was at Atlantic one year and got hired back to the CBS Records cover department because once I had done that work and uh, I won some awards, the art director at CBS Records wanted to hire me. I never could have done it from the advertising department. When I left the advertising department, the, the boss wanted me to stay and offered me more money. It would have been ridiculous to take that choice. Right. It would have been ridiculous. You always have to make a career move based on the work because the work is what builds your reputation and what will ultimately give you power. It isn't money and it isn't even job title. It's what are you going to get to make and what are other people going to see. Yeah. That's everything. And so, you know, in the beginning, what you want to do is be near people who you can learn from and who, by being around them, you learn how to grow because you watch how they make decisions. That's really important. Right. You watch their hustle and you can right. see. Yeah. That being said, I have one more question for you. Sure. If you can go back, this is such a cliche question, but it often brings interesting answers. So if you could start at the, at the beginning of your life again and do it all over again, what would you change? What would you tell yourself? Would you have done the same things? Because it sounds, you know, you did a pretty damn good job. I would <laughs> you navigated life pretty well. You're one of the most well-known designers in the whole world. So I didn't. I didn't start out to be that. I didn't. If you if you had asked me um, what I thought I would be at my age now, when I was 20, I would have thought, well, I'd be a grandmother, you know, and um, I might have done several things. I didn't. I didn't really have any sense, to be honest with you, about how strong this part of my life was going to become. I mean, it wasn't designed that way. I don't know that I understood about that in my 20s. It was something that became progressively apparent that for me that, that I loved making things and that that was the thing that gave me the most satisfaction in life. Were you, were you always present or were you always thinking about the future? I do both. I mean, I think that that maybe what I like about making things is it is so present, mm -hmm. you know, that I that at that moment, I mean, I started out as really a wunderkind when I was your age, when I was 26 year old, six years old, I was senior art director of CBS Records. I made 150 covers a year and I had a staff and, you know, they were 22 and I was 26. And then I had another staff and I was 30 and they were 22 and then I had another staff and I was 35 and they were 22 and then I had another staff and I was 45 and they were 22 and now I'm 68 and they're 22 and I never think I aged because right. they're always the same age yeah. <laughs> um, and that's what happens in life so you know that that's the ever the sort of the ever present part and I sometimes don't feel like the future's happening until I, I look around me and that's very scary I think if I had had children I would have had a very different worldview, and I don't, I don't know what part of that is circumstantial and 
what part of that is something I always wanted and I didn't know it. I, I absolutely don't, don't have a handle on it, but I know that working for me is terrific if the projects can be good. When the projects can't be good, it's very depressing. That's why I balance it with painting where I control, control the thing because if I, if I find that there's a period in there, there, there are many in the course of a year. There could be a period where I have three crappy jobs at once that I didn't think were gonna be that bad when I got into them, usually something I took for the money, which is always smelly, no matter, because right. if you take something purely for the money, it's never enough or money. Or the job with the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you have to, um, if, the, if the work is not interesting, then I find that very demoralizing. Yeah. If the work has potential, is if the work has, uh, you know, the potential to be terrific, then it's very exciting. Right. It's awesome. It's the potential that matters. It's actually not the end result, by the way. Yeah. Well, you don't look a day over 21, so maybe they, maybe they are <laughs> keeping you young here, Paul. But uh, thank you so much for joining me. This was so much fun. It's so. really great. This awesome. is great. Yeah. You a really good job, and you have the best microphone in town. It's very cute. It, it's very slender and it's slim. It's zippy. It, it doesn't look like it's pretentious. Does it make you wear headphones? It's actually not the microphone. It's the stand. The microphones are yeah. very It's a very cool stand. Yeah, thank you. All right, Paul Share. Thank, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Okay.